You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Come Home, Full Life in a Whole Church. In this series, we see that those who come to Christ find new life in a new family. We'll learn why the church exists, what it does, and how each of us is a valuable part. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child to him and put the child among them. Then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf is welcoming me. But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. What sorrow awaits the world because it tempts people to sin? Temptations are inevitable, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? So if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand or one foot than to be thrown into internal fire with both your hands and feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to enter eternal life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Beware that you don't look down on any of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels are always in the presence of my heavenly Father. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the ninety-nine others on the hill to go out and search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than over the ninety-nine that didn't wander away. In the same way, It is not my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Jonah, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Thanks for joining us this morning and giving us some of your time. Uh, In a couple of weeks, we're in Matthew for two more weeks this week and next week, and then if you saw the, the pre-service video, we will be starting a series through the book of Philippians called Prison Poems, Citizens of Joy in Circumstances of Suffering. And you may be wondering, where did that name come from? Uh, well, Philippians was written by a man named Paul while he was in prison. And right in the center of the book of Philippians is a poem that Paul wrote. And we want to consider, what is it about this man? What did he know? What did he experience? What is he trying to teach us that while he's in prison, waiting to get word on whether or not he'll be executed, he's able to write poetry about Jesus and to Jesus? What is the joy that's available to us, even in the midst of incredible suffering? And and we're inviting you all to participate in the series with us by just recording short videos on your phone of how has God carried you through circumstances of suffering? When is the time you've found joy in the midst of your own suffering? How have you seen God show up in powerful, 
beautiful ways that have brought you hope and life, even when things weren't going the way you expected them to. So anybody can do it. Post or record a video on your phone, on your computer, and send it to NewAlbany at SojournChurch.com, and we'll be excited to share that. Some will be in the service, some will be throughout the week. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my daughter asked my wife, before I get to what she asked, I want you to just imagine a normal Tuesday, right? You're at home with your kids. If you're like me, you're watching Frozen. I, I don't know what you're doing. It's a normal Tuesday, right? Nothing is going on. It's a normal Tuesday. And my daughter looks to my wife and asks if she could move in with someone that she wasn't married to when she's older. She, in essence, said, when I grow up, am I allowed to live with someone that's not my husband? This put mom on her heels a little bit, not expecting a question like that from a five-year-old. And we begin wondering, has she been watching too many shows? What's going on with Sophia the first? Is she doing some kind of shacking up situation? And where did, you know, what, what boy put this thought in my five-year-old's head? And I want to know his address. Uh, we had so many questions. I learned about this after the fact, which was God's mercy to my family, mostly my daughter. If she had asked me, I have a folder that's filled with, it's called my bad idea folder. And it's got all the statistical analysis about the potential bad ideas my children will have one day. And so I've got the, you know, move in with someone you're not married to folder. I would have whipped that out and I would have started with the sociological analysis. Here's why all the data says this isn't a good idea. Then I would have gotten my Bible out and not just, not like just my normal Bible that I read, but like the, the study Bible, the thickest Bible, the most intimidating looking Bible. And I would have gone through God's design for marriage that's for our good, for the good of society. And, you know, I would have just been ready to go. Uh, And thanks be to God, my wife is a, (laughs) she's just a better parent than I am. Uh, So instead of pulling out all the reasons for it to be a bad idea or whatever, uh, my wife started asking my daughter questions. My daughter can be a little hard to talk to sometimes. She either wants to talk or she doesn't. There's really no kind of like chit-chatty middle ground with her. And so after a few questions, my wife simply asked my daughter, is there someone you want to live with? And real sweetly, my five-year-old daughter responded, I want to live with Booker forever. And for those who don't know me, Booker is her older brother. And since the day Cora was born, we've told her that Booker is her best friend. We've indoctrinated her wonderfully. And so now her and Booker are best friends. They play together all day, uh, And she wants to live with her older brother for the rest of her life. This question had nothing to do with marriage and romance. All of the implications a question like that had for mom and dad were nowhere on the radar of the child. And what I appreciate so much about my wife in that moment is she didn't correct the original desire. She didn't rebuke my daughter for for wanting that. Instead, she got curious and drew out my daughter and learned her desires. And we were reminded of the sweet innocence of children. Several years ago, I remember talking to a friend in college about what we were going to do after, right? What do you want to be? What are you going to go do? And I remember he just said, I want to be famous. And I said, well, for what? And he said, I don't care. I don't care what I'm famous for. I just want to be famous. And it doesn't matter why. And I thought, 
I thought that response was so strange, but I, I couldn't just put, put my finger on it. And over the last few weeks, I've been comparing that kind of a sentiment. I don't care why, I just want to be rich and famous. I don't know why. To the conversations, again, with my daughter. If you ask my daughter, what does she want to be when you grow up? And I imagine some of you with children have a similar experience. When my, my daughter says she wants to be a singing ballerina OBGYN who lives with her brother. That's her aspiration in life right now. And if you press her, why do you want to be a singing ballerina OBGYN who lives with her brother? The answer is really simple. Uh, she loves to sing. She loves dancing. She loves babies. And she loves her brother. She wants those things because she loves those things. Imagine how strange it would be to ask a five-year-old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said, I want to be a doctor so everyone will love me. Or I, I want to be a lawyer so I can drive a fancy car. There's something wonderfully pure and innocent about the desires of children. And I get it, like not always. There's exceptions. But when a, when a child is relaxed, when they're in a safe and loving home, there is an honesty that is revealed in the heart of a child that, it, that life just seems to find a way to crush by the time we're adults. As we grow, good desires often become twisted and then they come out sideways. We lose our innocence and our desires lose their purity. And so one way to think about it is our desires become more reactionary. They're less moving towards something and more moving away from something. And so you'll hear people with their ambitions or their desires, and you'll say, why? Why do you want that? Why are you doing that? And then they'll say things like, I'll never let someone do that to me again, so I will become like this. I never had this, so I'm going to work for that. You see these kinds of things in athletes all the time. Everyone said I was this, so I decided to become that. You see that, that that's not pure, that's not innocent, it's reactionary. It's not moving to something, but away from something. I don't want this, so I'm going to run from that. This is playing out right in front of us in the text this morning. It begins in a strange way, and in our circles, I think, this question that's asked repeatedly by the disciples in all four Gospels, it, I think it makes most of us very uncomfortable. In verse 1, it says, About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And other, other times they'll say, How can we become the greatest? Or how can we sit at your right hand? You see in the disciples this desire to be a big deal in the kingdom of heaven. And I just don't think it's a coincidence that this happens right after a significant failure. You can go back and read the end of chapter 17 in Matthew. You can listen to the sermon about this last week. But to put it real simply, the disciples couldn't cast out a demon while Jesus was being transfigured high on a mountain. And can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? Can you imagine walking around being known as one of the followers of Jesus who was the Messiah? And then you come in with all of your supernatural powers and you fail right in front of crowds and right in front of a suffering, scared dad. Can you imagine the disciples saying, we'll never let that happen again? I will never be embarrassed like that again. And immediately they go to Jesus and say, how can I become great again? I'm never gonna let this happen. So how can I become great 
Do you see the reactionary movement there? It's worth noticing, and thankfully, Matthew 18 is in every Bible. You can go spend your whole afternoon reading through this yourself. But as you read it, or maybe as you listened to Meg reading it for us, did you notice Jesus does not rebuke their ambition? In any of the instances where the disciples talk about being great in the kingdom of God, Jesus never responds with, how dare you? You're so selfish. I think he recognizes where that is coming from, what's, what that is really about with the disciples. He knows how we get twisted. Fear, shame, and guilt take something good and distort it. Haven't you seen that happen in your life? A good desire that you have for something that is good, that God has made you to desire, and sin comes and distorts it, and it comes out in an entirely crazy way. I think the disciples have a fear of being embarrassed again. And so they desire greatness. But the desire for greatness is not the problem here. You don't see Jesus rebuking their ambition. It's not a sin to desire a life of significance, to be a person of consequence. But when our desire for greatness is twisted by a wound, when it grows grandiose and reactionary, that's a problem. A wound will drive us to crazy places. When when we think significance or greatness has to be something big, like casting out a demon or being rich and famous, this is not the way of Jesus. So, to put it real simply, Jesus does not rebuke their desire for greatness. He simply offers them a new perspective on what greatness in the kingdom of God means. What is true greatness? Where will that desire actually be satisfied? And he's inviting them and all of us to purify these desires that have become twisted over time by sin and suffering. And his invitation is, he invites us to do this in what I think is quite a puzzling way, one of the strangest utterances to come out of the mouth of Jesus. So in verses two through four, he answers their question. He says, um, well, it says he, he called a little child to them and he put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who becomes great, sorry, so anyone who becomes as humble as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's as though Jesus is saying, you desire greatness? Good, you're made in my image. Now, if you want greatness, it does not look like you think it does. Greatness in my kingdom looks like this little child. Purity of heart, innocence, humility, like little children. And so you'll often hear Christians talk about having faith like a child. And that's a nice sentimental thought. But in some ways, it's, it's so ambiguous as to almost be unhelpful. What does it actually mean? What does it actually look like? If we want to be pure and innocent and have genuine desires and experience godly greatness in his community, I mean, how does an adult with all of the pressure 
all of the complexity, live like a child. We're supposed to stop paying bills, stop having jobs, and just color all day? What does it mean to live like a child? So there's a ton going on in these verses. I encourage you to sit down with Matthew 18, 1 through 14 after this, and you can read through this real slowly and see what I'm talking about. But I wanna try to simplify what I think Jesus is getting at. What is the invitation to be like a child? Uh, the The first way, or the first, I don't know, aspect of what I think living like a child means is, and before I get into these, if you have a kid, you already know this. You know this without knowing it. This is going to sound so obvious as to almost appear dumb to you. I'm telling you, you know this and you have lived this, and this is Jesus's invitation to you. So the first aspect of what I think it means to be a child is to welcome and be welcomed with ease. Children welcome others, and they are welcomed by others with incredible ease. And so Remember a time when we used to touch people? You remember that? It used to happen all the time. You used to touch people all the time. And do you remember when you had your first child, how many strangers would touch your child? You'd be in the grocery store, two two lane aisles and everything, right? You'd be in the grocery store and some stranger would just come up and pinch a cheek or say ridiculous things to the child. You know, the baby talk stuff. Have you noticed how everyone wants to hold a newborn? Why? Human children are the most approachable beings in God's entire creation. We are drawn to their innocence. And have you noticed what generosity is aroused in a person when they're around a little child? My neighbor is uh, a retired Vietnam Special Forces veteran. He is a man who has lived a hard life and he is a hard man. And this man handwrites birthday cards to my children. He bakes them brownies. He gives them balloons. The generosity and warmth that comes out of him, the tone of his voice when he talks to my children, it's unbelievable. We are to receive one another with that same kind of openness and generosity that all of us already know how to do with little children. Jesus says we are to welcome each other in this way, in the same way that we would welcome a child. To be like a child is to receive other people, to welcome them like you do little children. This is why Jesus has such harsh warnings for those who harm children or lead them astray. We are to receive one another as we would a little child. And we approach others as children do. What does that mean? You notice how kids have to learn to be prejudiced? You notice how kids have to learn racism? Kids have to learn to discriminate and tease? They're not born that way. There is an openness to relationship in the heart of children. They are born curious. They are born open. Jesus came to break down walls of prejudice and reunite us as the family of God. So we are to receive and approach others like children do. Fundamentally, it means we approach with curiosity and we welcome with generosity. We we approach with a posture of curiosity, an openness to relating to one another, and we welcome each other with generosity. To be like a child means you welcome and you are welcomed with ease. 
The second and perhaps most obvious way we're to live like a child is to be single-minded. Have you noticed how single-minded children are, particularly in that kind of like three to seven range? I mean, really, I think newborn up, maybe to seven or eight. I'm not sure when, when they start getting sarcastic and sassy. After, after this lesson about welcoming, Jesus goes on this list of temptations and how we are to respond. And listen, if you, weren't, if you weren't paying attention at the start of this when the text was read, I'll just tell you, it is very intense. Go read it for yourself in Matthew 18. He gives us a list of what we do with temptations and they are real intense. So if a hand makes you sin, Jesus doesn't say, you know, like get an accountability group or whatever, go to church more often. He says, cut your hand off. If your foot makes you sin, cut your foot off. If your eye makes you sin, cut your eye out. I don't know how a foot makes you sin. Something to think about. I don't know. Go learn what this means. What Jesus is doing here, he did the same thing in the parable of the mustard seed. We talked about this a little bit ago, a week or two ago. Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. He's going so over the top to try to make a point. And what what he's inviting us to is a single-minded focus on the kingdom of God to where if anything distracts or would pull us away from that, to shut it down and to put it away. He's inviting us to be intensely focused like children are. So return your mind to the last time you had a meal with an infant or a toddler where maybe they're sitting on a high chair or they've got their little tiny kids' plates with the plastic forks. What does a child do when she's done with her grilled cheese? I'm not, talk- <laughs> I'm not talking about you Instagram moms that leave your perfect pictures of your kids' clean plates after the meal with the Bibles open, right? That just looks so perfect. I'm saying in the normal real world, what do children do when they're done with a piece of food? Most of the kids I've been around, they throw it. What's an infant do when they're in their high chair and they don't want any more green peas? Not, they can't be just like the rest of us who just leave them there and say, I'm finished. They throw them away. Get, get thee gone out of my sight. What does a child do? Imagine a little boy's holding a toy and he's got a toy in his hand and he sees another toy that he wants more. What does he do with this toy? He doesn't think about playing with both toys. He'll throw that toy away and just focus in on the new thing. What happens when your child finds a new movie that they love? How many times have you watched Frozen 2 in the last two months? How many times does your child ask you for the same story or to sing the same song? Have you noticed how obsessed a little kid can get when they find something that they love? And they find something that is beautiful. Children have an incredible capacity to leave something for the sake of something beautiful. When a child finds something interesting or beautiful, they are absolutely consumed by it. Jesus is inviting us to see the kingdom of heaven as being more beautiful, more desirable than anything else. It's even more desirable than your hand. It's more valuable than your eye. It's more important than your foot. He said to be like a child is to keep your focus there. When something tugs you away from the kingdom of God, don't play with it. Throw it away like a little child would. Get obsessed with the kingdom. Set your focus there continually. Listen to the same song over and over. Read the same book over and over. To be like a child means to have an intense 
single-minded focus on the kingdom of God. And again, to say, to be single-focused, single-minded and focused, that's easy to say, but how, how do we cultivate this kind of childlike focus? There's got to be something more than just try harder involved. And this is, this is the third invitation here. What does it mean to be like a child? Children take big risks when they have a big dad. Before getting into what I mean precisely by that, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that one of the greatest hurdles many must overcome in the life of faith is all the things that their father was or was not, their biological dad. I don't know if anything shapes the way a person sees their heavenly father. I don't think anything shapes that with the same power, the same way, at least at the start. Nothing shapes the way we see our heavenly father as the way our earthly father interacted with us. You ask somebody what they think God thinks of them and how they feel about God. And they're, unless they've done a lot of work, a lot of prayer, worked through their stuff, almost always the way they see God is, lines up so well with the way they saw their father. Some of you, I know, lost your dad when you were young. Some of you had a dad who did not love you well. Some of you had a dad that left you feeling more anxious than, than confident. So if that's you, if your dad feels more like a loss than a blessing to you, I'm pleading with you to fight to see your heavenly father as he truly is and not as your dad was. Some of you will, over the next few moments will have to strain to imagine a dad like the one we heard about earlier in the prodigal son story. Some of you may need to strain with your imaginations to see a dad like the one described in this passage. So Jesus ends this teaching about being like a little child with the story about a shepherd seeking lost sheep. He's trying to tell you something about what your father in heaven is like. If I could summarize the story in one sentence, I would say it says this. You have a dad who will come and save you. Your dad is constantly watching you, constantly pursuing you because you are precious to him. He is coming for you. He is relentless in his loving pursuit of you. Your earthly father may not have been that for you, but your father in heaven will never rest in his loving pursuit of you. Watch how this all connects here. If you want to be great, become like a child, open and generous, single-minded. How do I do this? What if I fail? I'm scared to lay this thing down. I'm scared to put off this distraction and keep moving this way. In those moments, you have to remember you have a big dad who is ready to find you when you are lost who's ready to catch you when you fail, who's ready to support you 
in your pain and your suffering. I'm going to talk about my daughter one more time. When my daughter was first learning to swim, I guess she's still learning to swim. We're not exactly comfortable with her swimming right now. But when she was first going through it, she found herself one day in a precarious spot. She didn't have her swim muscles on. That's what we call floaties. We think swim muscles sounds cooler and tougher, so we call them swim muscles. She didn't have her floaties on. And she was standing at the edge of a pool, and she wanted to jump in. Who doesn't like jumping in a pool? Come on. It's, you're hot, and it's cold, and it's fun, and it splashes, and it's fun. Why did she want to do it? Because it's fun. She wanted to jump in the pool. She looked at me, and she said, I'm scared, Daddy. You're too far away. Come closer. She wanted to be able to touch me. And I was like, no, baby, you got to jump. She was looking around at all the kids in the pool. She starts crying. People are watching. Other kids are shouting and splashing. Her legs started shaking. The water was only three and a half feet, but she was only like two and a half feet tall, right? So she's afraid and looking all around. And I said, look at me. I remember clapping my hands. I said, look at me. And there's, boom, you know, tractor beam right on my face. And I spread my arms open and I said, I'll catch you. You can do it. And she said, I'm so scared. And I just said, jump. And in a moment that felt like time was standing still, she squatted down and jumped into my arms. When you have a big dad, it does not mean you will not be scared. It does not mean that your legs won't start shaking when you pursue that single-minded focus. It doesn't mean you will not have doubts or distractions. It does not mean that it will not be difficult or painful to let something go or to put it down. It does not mean that you won't have good reasons not to. Having a big dad means that when you jump, he will catch you. It means if you run away, he will find you. It means if you fail, he will forgive and pursue you. If you jump enough times, you will know that you are safe because you are his. See, the true innocence of a child, I think, is the product of a healthy home. They know they are safe to be who they are because they are loved by their parent. They know they are accepted. They know they belong. And if, if you try to just step back from the passage for a minute, you will see that Jesus is doing everything he's asking us to already. It's playing out here in this passage. He's curious with his disciples rather than critical just like a child. He's focused on the kingdom of heaven, captivated by its beauty and mission. And he's pursuing and keeping his little ones safe, even as they are scared and confused. Ultimately, what keeps Jesus on the single-minded focus? He knows his father will catch him when he jumps. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He took the path of a servant, even though he was the greatest in the entire universe. He laid his life down for his sheep because he loves them. If it is a pure and innocent heart you long for, 
you must look to the pure love of God in Christ. Our innocence is restored only because we are covered by the blood of the innocent one. And only that love is beautiful enough to hold our attention for a lifetime. Have you noticed how every story we tell somewhere involves the beauty of sacrificial love that brings new life? Look at all your fairy tales, all your favorite movies. Somewhere, someone sacrifices themselves out of love and they are raised and made something more beautiful. This story is the longing of the human heart. And I'm telling you, the love of Christ for you, seen in his perfect life, his death in your place and his resurrection, that is the only love beautiful enough that can compel you and satisfy you for a lifetime. It's the only love powerful enough to keep us open and tender amidst life's many fears and losses. It's the only love deep enough to keep us curious for all eternity. Jesus is inviting you to true greatness by becoming like a child again. What will that mean for you? What's the pool you long to jump in? I I was talking with a friend yesterday, and in essence, he said, if I trusted God, I would be content where I am. It could be something small like that. We have to get away from thinking greatness means grandiosity. Greatness may not be noticeable. It could be a small choice. It could be a simple choice. But in the kingdom of God, those baby steps are the pathway to true greatness. If you believed God would catch you when you jump, where would you jump? What would you do? And I think it's such a wonder that the way we're invited to remember this reality, the way we're invited to receive this continual invitation to to be welcomed back home is through such ordinary means. The greatest victory of all time, the most significant thing that's ever happened, we are called to remember and experience that mystery through something very small and very ordinary. So we remember the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, a loaf of bread. It's not grandiose. It's not a French baguette. It's it's just bread. He thanked God for it, blessed it, and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. After the meal, in the same way, he took a cup of wine, which for them, was, this was an everyday drink. This was like apple juice. This was like a glass of water. This is what they drank with meals. It was the most normal drink that he could have grabbed. He said, when you drink this ordinary cup, remember that it's my blood shed for you that seals your relationship with God. And so if you're wondering, how do I know God will care for me? How do I know God loves me? I want you to find something very ordinary in your home, something to eat, something to drink, something that you can see every day, but maybe from here on out, see in a new light. And remember, as you eat something, that the body of Christ was given for you. And as you drink something, The blood of Christ was shed for you. So as long as the body of Christ is still given for you and the blood of Christ is still shed for you, you are still loved by God. You are still held by God. You cannot uncrucify or unresurrect Jesus. Your standing as his child is secure. So take whatever you have, break it, eat it, 
drink of it and remember God's relentless love for you. If you're willing, take a picture of yourself or whoever you're with and let's fill our Facebook feed with pictures and comments. We're using a hashtag for this, uh, says he is risen. We're in the Easter season and we're remembering that he brings us new life. All of these desires or these objects of our desires that we're called to put away, it's not to shut down our desires. It's to find something better, truer, more beautiful. We put these things down to pick up something even more beautiful. And we remember that we can, we can pursue those because we are loved by God and held safe already. Jesus is inviting you to true greatness by becoming like a child again. I'll pray for us and then let's celebrate communion wherever we are. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android, where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.